When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Aussies only, thanks to GLG Greenlife Group, leaders in property services and open space management at glgcorp.com. Well, for Aussies only this month, we're happy to chat to a dual sportsman. It is Scott Draper, of course, former world number 42, a star of the Australian tennis ranks who had a, a very good golf career towards the, the end of that tennis journey as well, won the Australian Open mixed doubles title alongside Sam Stozer, a fellow Queenslander, and a remarkable journey if you look at that point early in Sam's career, late in, in Scott's career, uh, just what that meant in terms of both players and the direction uh, going forward for, for, for the Sam journey, which only finished a few months ago officially at the Australian Open uh, with her uh, winning Grand Slams across three different decades. But, uh, Scott, nice to have you on board, and, and thanks for joining us. Uh, good to chat, Darren, and thanks for having me. Might start there uh, before we go back to the uh, the, the very beginning, but th- th- those 05 memories, and, and, I, and I guess reflecting on Sam's journey, if someone had told you then that she'd do what she went on to do, I, I know that was a fascinating point for you as well because you're actually uh, playing – golf and tennis at the same time and you know that crossover between the, the high levels but did you think Sam would be the Sam that we know today? I certainly did from a, a doubles perspective you know Sam as you said was fairly early in her career and it was serendipitous that I actually you know played with her in that 2005 Australian Open and it was a strange event because I was playing both golf and tennis at that stage but in terms of Sam I was not planning on playing mixed doubles and Todd Reed, uh, you know, rest in peace, Todd, um, who isn't with us today for, for tragic reasons. And, and uh, he was meant to be playing with, with Sam Stowe's at that event. And I was walking down the hallway, you know, at Melbourne Park there. And Sam just said, hey, Scotty, do you want to have a game of mix? Because my partner's pulled out. And I said, sure, sounds, sounds good. You know, let's have a game. And um, I played the first round with Sam, obviously, and and I walked off the court and I spoke to my family and I said to them, I said, we're a chance. Like, you know, this, because I, you know, played with, you know, other players and it wasn't that I didn't think the other players I played with were very good, but Sam was was quite exceptional on the doubles court. I mean, her serve really held its own, uh, obviously against the females, but also the males. I mean, she could, she could just hold that half of the court and I didn't need to cover her at all. Um, and the funny thing about mixed is if you're an average male like me playing with a, you know, a very good superstar female like Sam, um, you're a far better chance than if you're the superstar male playing with an average female. And and look, she was just awesome. And, you know, I had absolute confidence that we'd do well. And as it sort of happened, we went through the tournament, ended up winning the thing. So it wasn't surprising at all for me to see what Sam did in doubles. You know, in terms of singles, you kind of never know. I mean, I coached Ash Barty as a as a 12 to 14-year-old and I made a comment to Pat Rafter, you know, to him, like when she was that age, I said, if this girl doesn't win a slam doubles, I'll eat my hat. And 
I also had confidence about her being a hell of a singles player, but there's a kind of a thing with singles. You just never know until you get older, right? Until you really get on the scene and have the X factor and you've got that kind of resilience to just be out there on your own because tennis is a very lonely sport. Um, but, you know, Sam obviously went on, played an amazing US Open, great career, could have won, you know, more French Opens and and whatnot. She she was a hell of a clay quarter and, um, you know, has had, had an incredible career and what a wonderful person to boot. Absolutely. Um, it, it's been a remarkable journey along that way. Looking at the, the start for you with the, the golf and the, the tennis thing, obviously you would have shown a lot of talent as a junior in tennis and, and climbing up the rankings there. Was golf always on the horizon? And did you reach a point like a lot of people do at 14, 15, 16, where a decision had to be made? Or, or was it something that came a, a little bit later on? Yeah, look, golf never entered my mind as a sport or as an option uh, really until about 25 years of age. And it was was mainly due to the passing of my first wife, Kelly, who, you know, tragically passed away at 23. And I played golf as a bit of a therapy outlet getting through the that stage of grief. And, and I got quite good at that stage. So I had a bit of a, I, I had a bit of a thought like, oh, geez, I'm probably pretty decent at this game. And I was about a plus two handicap and, and uh, I thought, oh, you never know. So then I put on the back burner and I came back to it at 30, which is where I made the transition from tennis to golf. But in terms of my upbringing, you know, tennis was always the focus. I'm the youngest of three. Uh, brother played. He got to like 150 in the world, played, you know, uh, Wimbledon's and US Opens. We played doubles together. My sister was also a very good tennis player. She just actually played in the Worlds, um, the senior Worlds. My mum and dad both played at a high level. So tennis was the, was the family sport. And I think as a you know, middle class, pretty, you know, fantastic upbringing. My brother and I, we we just played a lot of sport. We used to grab dad's golf clubs out of, you know, his bag and go over to the football over, which was across the road. And we'd whack balls around. Um, you know, we enjoyed playing golf in the school holidays occasionally, but it was never anything we did seriously. It was just a bit of fun. And um, as I said, it wasn't until 25 that, that I that I, you know, was playing golf at a decent level. Um, but, you know, through six months of practice and getting my first lesson and whatnot, I really improved rapidly, which, as I said, kind of made me think, geez, you know, maybe one day. And then when I <clears throat> got to 30 years of age where my knee was was uh, in all sorts and I took the year off to, to get surgery and whatnot, I was both getting my body ready back for tennis, but I was also practicing every day for golf. And I went to tour school with a with a view to maybe think about you know what's it like what do I need to work on am I good enough and I got through like I mean I got my professional card and and I had dual status on the ATP tour with a protected ranking and also had my card for the Australian or Australasian tour so very unusual set of circumstances and not nothing was planned but just followed a dream and and it came to reality. Before we get to the, the the very start, we're just having a chat off air before that you've left-handed at, at tennis, right-handed at golf, and that's probably more common than I than I thought it was. Um, in terms of being a lefty, are you a lefty at many other things, or is it just a, a, effectively a tennis thing? Because I'm one of those people who's basically left-handed at half the things I do and right-handed at the other half, and uh, felt like it was quite rare, but but maybe not so. Uh, look, so first of all, I'm all over the shop when it comes to handedness. I mean, <laughs> and and uh, what foot you kick with and whatnot. I mean, I'm you know, I'll the, probably the weirdest one that I that I do is um, I throw 
all small balls, like, you know, baseballs, cricket balls, tennis balls, I throw that right arm. I bowl right-handed in cricket. But if I've got a basketball or a gridiron ball or something bigger, I'll do it with my left hand, right? So quite strange. I also, um, you know, when I was in school, I used to shoot a a bow and arrow or do archery right-handed. Not that I shoot guns or anything, but if I was to shoot a rifle, it'd be left hand. I mean, I do all these things all over the shop. So don't ask me what that's all about. (laughs) But in in tennis, um, I've only ever known one tennis player that played tennis left-handed, that played golf left-handed. Every single left-handed tennis player I know plays golf right-handed, except for one. So not uncommon that I, you know, was a lefty tennis player, righty golfer. Um, I'm not sure why that is. Uh, someone can explain that to me. That'd be good because I, I get asked that question a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my breakdown, the way I always describe it, is above the waist, below the waist, in that I throw right, uh, handball, uh, serve, all of that left-handed. But golf swing, yeah. kick, batting in cricket, all of that sort of stuff is right. So who knows Who knows how all of that works, but uh, it is an interesting one. Going back to the the, the very start, obviously, you know, Queensland has a very rich history in, in tennis and mm-hmm. that continues on to, to this day. How did it start for you? And I guess at what point did the penny drop that, yeah, I'm, I'm better than average here and can actually go some way with this sport? So, you know, you know, as I said, I'm kind of born into tennis in some respects. I was the youngest and, you know, I'd follow mum and dad to, you know, to fixtures on the weekend, tournaments, you know, mum played midweek ladies. My brother and sister were already engaged in the game. So, you know, kind of just was a natural thing. Um, loved it. I mean, you know, we spent every weekend as a family playing something, you know, all the way from me being eight years of age, playing my first tournament right through and couldn't wait for the weekends. You know, school was kind of like the depressive state on Sunday night, you know, just don't <laughs> want it. You know, don't want to go to school, couldn't wait for the next weekend to play the tournament. So I was very passionate about it. I remember having conversations at the dinner table, you know, as a family, uh, you know, certainly my brother and I, as we got older, you know, into that sort of maybe, you know, 13, 14, 15 sort of year old adolescence, talking about becoming a top 100 player right through to being a 17, 18 year old, finishing your juniors, thinking about the, the, the um, transition from juniors to pros. And we sort of spoke about, you know, being top hundred and whatnot, but it seemed, it seemed quite unrealistic. For I mean, there was a part of you that goes, "Am I good enough? I hope I am. I'd love to play Wimbledon." You know, we you'd want all those those big dreams and aspirations, but at the same time, it kind of you just didn't know, right? I mean, it was it was a uh, a big aspiration, and. To be honest, I nearly gave the game away at probably nineteen. You know, I had a decent junior career. You know, I made the semis the Australian Open juniors. I won junior Wimbledon doubles. Made a couple of Australian teams, but you know, at nineteen, I was still sort of floundering around satellite events and not doing that well. And so you start to question whether you're good enough. You know, Becker was winning Wimbledon at seventeen, and and I don't know. You just felt like maybe I'm not good enough. But it wasn't until I met Michael Fox, who has really helped me um, from a sports psychology and a, and a psychology perspective to really transform how to compete. And he was, you know, incredibly influential. And, you know, I was lucky to make a very quick transition, um, you know, from no ranking to top 100 in nine months in my sort of 20 to 21st birth year. So, um, yeah, very lucky to get there and spend, you know, 12 years on the ATP Tour. What were the the early challenges? We often talk to people about living away from home for the first time, and you know, having to defend for yourself overseas and and that sort of thing. How did you you find that transition as a as a young tennis player? 
Look, I think, you know, I remember my first trip. I made the Australian team at 16. It was my first uh, time to go overseas and it was to Italy. We spent six weeks there. And that was a huge, that was a huge kind of culture shift or lifestyle shift, being away from home. Travelling back in those days was very different. You completely disconnected. I mean, I sent postcards home that, that I beat the postcard home. So, <laughs> you know, it, it, it kind of was just a different area. You've got no phones, you've got no laptops, you know, you're just completely disconnected, fending for yourself. And, um, you know, I sort of shouldn't complain because, I mean, my some of my, you know, mentors, people I looked up, my first coach, Mal Anderson, you know, they, they used to, you know, take a ship to go and play. So I shouldn't, you know, <laughs> complaining about not having a phone and, and this sort of stuff is is a completely different set of problems to what they'd had. But, uh, you know, it was a big shift from being a, a kid who lived in a suburb, you know, sheltered kind of wonderful upbringing to being in Italy, competing against the best juniors in the world and whatnot. But that was go- a good experience for me to do. And it kind of set me up for the next series of, of, of opportunities where I traveled. For me, when I started to travel, the travel wasn't it was not easy. It's not like I'm saying travel's easy, but that wasn't a, I mean, I felt grateful that I had the opportunity to be playing a sport that I loved and to see the world. And that, so that was never a real struggle for me. Um, you know, the biggest challenge for, I think any athlete, particularly in tennis, it's a very lonely, you know, place on the tennis court and you're having a problem solve you know, it's a bit of a, a merry-go-round. You're on the kind of the circus or the you, every week you go to a new hotel, new event, et cetera. And it's trying, to, it's trying to get the best out of yourself every single time you step onto the court is the hardest challenge. It, it's, um, it's staying motivated. It's keeping things fresh, knowing what you've got to do to get the best out of yourself and deal with all these emotions that come with winning and losing and, you know, ups and downs with confidence and whatnot. It, that's the biggest challenge as opposed to travel per se for me. Just going off on a tangent before we continue, I've also, I always ask this question on SEN and never knew the answer because obviously it comes down to opinion, your best place or better place to answer it than most. But I always wanted being elite tennis versus elite golf, mm-hmm. what in your perception would be harder? Because obviously in tennis, you have the capacity to influence the performance of the guy across the net and you can actively beat him and, and therefore take the title. Whereas in golf, you could play the, the round of your life, but you have no control over whether somebody else plays a better round and you can't dictate what they do. Do you, do you have a view on, on which one would be harder to climb to? Look, I, I do. And, and you know, I, I kind of preface this by saying, I think both golf and tennis are both difficult sports. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, maybe sports like boxing, you know, cage fighting. I've got the name what we call that. Um, you MMA know, or whatever. Yeah, MMA or whatever, yeah. or or you know, figure skating where you you've got to land a bloody triple lutz on a on a blade, and then you know, if you fail, you you're out for four years. You know, there's there's other sports where I kind of look at it and go, geez, I don't particularly want to be doing those. Mm. You know, but tennis and golf are very difficult, and I think tennis is harder than golf. Although I know if things are going bad in golf and you're struggling, it's a nightmare, right? So it is a very much a, a psychological sport. But the thing that for me makes tennis more difficult than golf is probably two things. One is the opponent does have a say in what you do. 
a massive say. I mean, literally, I mean, if, if I give you a stat, um, you know, the year that Andy Murray, you know, got to number one in the world, you know, I think he won 52 or 54% of the, the points that year, right? So every match is kind of on a knife edge and, it, and every opponent's spending the time trying to put you in the positions you don't want to be in, vice versa, and it's who's better at that, basically. Um, and, and in golf, you are the master of your own destiny completely. I mean, no one can affect what you do. And, and so... To be uh, a person like me who made the transition from tennis to golf, there is no way on the in the world that could happen in reverse. There's no way if you just decided at 25 to go and play tennis and pick up a racket and you know become a professional. I don't think that's possible. Certainly not to win a tournament, you know, because you know, again, I can work around my challenges. I mean, I I didn't have experience in certain areas, but I could play to my strengths, and no one can affect what I do. Um, and also think that you know, time is a blessing, but it's also a curse. And if you're using that time really effectively in golf, you can really manage yourself really well. Whereas in tennis, again, you know, things are happening quickly, which again, it works both ways. I know this, um, but for me, tennis overall is 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 more difficult because you're not the master of your own destiny. And also the physicality of the sport, you have to be both psychologically and physically in absolute tip-top shape. Whereas in golf, you have to be psychologically in tip-top shape. I don't think you have to be in tip-top shape physically, even though that has shifted and it is continuing to shift in in more of an athletic way. Absolutely. I think that's a a very good answer. Overall on that, so through the mid to late 90s, obviously back-to-back fourth rounds at the, the French Open, played Sampras in, in one of those. That, that US Open fourth round, a very competitive match, I think it was against Bjorkman. That was the year, obviously, Rafter won it for the, the first yep. time. I guess your, your reflections on those opportunities into the into the second yep. week and the, and the last 16. Yeah, look, I, I mean, yeah, three really big opportunities. My first French Open fourth round against Renzo Furland, I just jumped onto the scene. I mean, I, I just qualified, made the fourth round. I was playing incredible, started to rain in this first set, lost sort of my mind a little bit, realised where I was and, you know, was an inexperienced moment where I didn't make the most of the opportunity. The, the, the next year against Sampras, I actually felt really confident. I mean, if you're going to play Pete in any yeah. last 16, it's you want to play him, you know, on clay. And I felt like I was playing well enough to do it. I just played poorly. I mean, you know, he played okay, played pretty well. Obviously, he's, he's you know, he's, he's a superstar, but I just didn't perform. And that kind of was a bit, was considerably disappointing not to make the most of that opportunity. I made it a progress beyond, I think, you know, Curry was the next match I would have to play. You know, Jim Curry obviously would have been very difficult to beat. So, you know, but it would have been good to make a last date, right? The US Open fourth round against Bjorkman, that was really interesting from this perspective that he and Jan Appel played a doubles match the night before and they won 15-13 in the fifth when there was doubles being played over five sets. And I got I got carved up in the first two sets. He started to tie. I played a good third set, won it. I was up 4-1 in the fourth set, and I reckon he was done. Got a, got a New York thunderstorm. You know, it was humid, hot, got a thunderstorm, had a rain delay, came back. Again, I had this issue after rain delay for some reason. I used to lose concentration, whatever it is. Lost my serve, went to a tiebreaker. I was up 6-4 in the breaker, and I would almost bet my life that if I had won that, you know, that fourth set, I would have won the fifth because he was cooked. And so I lost that breaker, lost the match. The next round, Peter caught a forfeits. He, he was crook or something. And that would have been to play Rosetsky in the semis. 
which Rosetsky and Rafter went on to play the final. So, look, that was an opportunity to maybe make the semis, you know, but it didn't happen. And, and uh, you know, I'm pretty proud to make the last 16 of three majors. In terms of your, the ATP title at Queen's, the lowest ranked player to to achieve that, which is a nice one to, to have. And obviously a tournament that, uh, you know, one of the key lead-up tournaments to Wimbledon and, and one that the Australians have, have generally fared okay in over the journey. Your, your reflections on on that, it would have been a, a, a nice experience. Yeah. It was 97. Ninety eight. Uh, was it ninety eight? Ninety eight. Ninety eight. Yeah. And um, look, that was an interesting. I, I had a complicated career. I mean, I as I said, I I, I lost a, a wife, and and the first five years of, I guess, of travel, you know, was yeah, fantastic, but also very difficult at times. We had hospital visits and all sorts of stuff in there, and and uh, it wasn't ideal. And the French Open before Queens, that when I won it, um, Kel had a an emergency surgery and it was a nightmare and she was not, um, not well at all. And I dropped out of the top hundred just like I was one Oh two for the first time in a few years. And I went to Queens and I'd done some great work with Tony Roach, but you know, it was kind of like, I had this, had this weird sense of, of perspective or something. I don't, I don't know. It was like, look, I'm outside the top hundred. Let's just, let's just play tennis, enjoy it. Kel's starting to feel better again. I just had this kind of, a bit of a weight off my shoulders. I don't know how to explain that. And and I went into this event and I was actually playing Michael Tebbett in the first round, another Australian lefty. And he actually had me on toast in the third set. And I wasn't feeling great. I used to struggle with allergies a little bit in, in, in the UK and I wasn't feeling great. And, you know, I just said to myself, mate, hang in there. You never know. If you win this match, you might win the tournament. And played amazing the rest of this set, you know, was lucky enough to get over, uh, over, over Tebsy on that occasion and then just went on a run. You know, I beat Pat and beat Brett Stephen. I beat Mark Woodford, who beat Sampras. You get through to the final, and I'm playing Lawrence Tillman, who was an, also an unexpected finalist. And, you know, you get through and you win a, a major event. So don't ask me how that stuff occurs or happens. You know, you kind of put yourself in enough situations. You play 12 years in the tour, and you, you don't get those, those opportunities. I made two other finals. I lost to Agassi in Washington. I lost to Todd Woodbridge in Adelaide, two other tour event um, finals. But, you know, to win one's also a, a feather in your cap. Certainly. Uh, looking at the latter stages of your career, I was curious to debate around that big three. I think you you played Roger and nearly beat him in Cincinnati. Is that right? Um, and I think... Yeah, I had, seven, I had seven match points on him. Yeah, so... Um, Reflections on that. He would have won Wimbledon just before that, I think. That would have he been did. his first title in in '03. So, um, I guess your reflections on him. And I don't. Did you cross paths with Nadal and Djokovic? You might have just missed them. Yeah, I played Nadal. I played Nadal on clay. Uh, it was either the year before he won his first French or the year before that. I mean, he was young. He was about sixteen. You know, hell of a hell of a clay quarter. Played him in Axon Provence uh, and. Anyway, yeah, you know, he was young, but but um, but certainly you could see how good he was. Uh, and I never got, I never played Novak. Um, so my career kind of spanned, you know, Mats Willander, Edberg, Becker. So I played those three um, right through, you know, Sampras Agassi career, all the clay quarters like the Musters and the Bregueras and whatnot, Moyers, and right through to Federer and and Rafa. So an interesting, an interesting kind of. Uh, career of players to see how many shifts were made in that time too but in terms of reflections against Roger you know I believe that my life in 2003 was at and I reckon I was playing the best tennis of my life in that year and I think if I didn't get injured uh, later that year 
I, I think I would have had a, a, a nice, a very good 2004. Um, unfortunately, injuries, you know, had other ideas. And so at that time, I was playing really good. Life was simple. Kel, you know, was, she'd passed away in 1999. And it took me two years to kind of get through that. So from 2001 to this match, I, I had a pretty nice, I went back from, I came back from 400 in the world or something because I just fell off the radar came back to the top 100 for the first time in a while and I was playing really good. And, you know, this match, you know, I, I played well and I, I played very well. You know, these seven match points that I had, you know, I did make one error. I threw the kitchen sink at Roger. Some of the shots he came up with was extraordinary. And, you know, I actually kind of, well, not kind of, I wrote a book on the back end of, of this match called Too Good. And Too Good's kind of a philosophy that, I've used both in matches where you have to shake hands to a tougher opponent. And in this case, on that day, Roger, a tougher opponent, you know, too good. You shake hands, well done. Uh, but you're proud of what you've, you know, put in in terms of the process, but you don't always get the outcome you're looking for. And the same thing with life, you know, losing Kelly, I, I realized that the only way forward is to actually shake hands to, to life at times and say, too good. You know, as much as I want her back, it's not going to happen. I have to face that reality, shake hands to a tougher opponent, move forward. And so this moving forward idea, um, you know, has been a big one in my life. And and look, you know, I was I was not annoyed about the loss whatsoever. I was actually very proud. And, and I think that helps reframe failure for me that there's only one type of failure in my mind. And that is when you don't put your best effort uh, into something. And against Roger, I did. Didn't get the result I wanted, but there's peace in that. So it was a great experience. Uh, decision to to end and, and obviously move to golf was that largely due to those injuries and and perhaps the I know golf can be a strain on the body but but maybe a little bit less arduous than than tennis was pro- was proving to be. I I just love the game. Mm. I, I honestly just love the game and I it's so addictive. You know my obsessive I've got an obsessive personality and and it fits right into that kind of trying to control this bloody white ball. Right. I mean. It's, <laughs> um, you know, and I, I just, you know, practice hard. I, I got quite good and, and I just wanted to be a professional golfer and, and, you know, to spend five years doing it again. Injuries had other ideas in the end. My back didn't like it. But, um, you know, to win the New South Wales PGA with a score of 20 under and to win a tier two event, you know, I, I, look, that's probably the most, I'd put that as probably number one in my sporting career from an achievement perspective. Like, that, that felt really quite special to me because, you know, people say something's not possible or you can't do this or, you know, you're kidding yourself to try and make that transition. But I, and I didn't care about the results of the achievement. I just wanted to go through the process and find out what was possible. And, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have that, have that time back for a second. I loved it. I'd love to still play professional golf, but you know, again, life has other ideas sometimes. What other in terms of those other ideas? What does life entail these days for uh, for Scott Draper? Yeah, look, Darren, I, I'm very lucky. I mean, I one thing I've always done is just followed, you know, a purpose. Like I'm very very big on purpose. You know, why do you play tennis? Why would you play golf? Why would you go to the next thing in life? And what I've done is I've always asked that question to myself, asking that why question. And um, you know, post sport, it was coaching. I spent time at Tennis Australia. I led our pathway. It, you know young leader, leading national teams, learn a lot about myself um, and then really wanted to make a transition out of sport into, I guess, helping people at a larger scale. Um, and so I went back to university. I did an MBA in leadership strategy and innovation. Um, and I've done a range of other things in the leadership domain. 
And so I've been consulting for, um, uh, I think it's about nine years now, eight or nine years at least. Actually, it's nine. Yeah, nine years. And I spent time at KPMG. Great experience. I was a director there. I've got my own business, Scott Draper Consulting. I'm an executive coach and I'm back in tennis also working in performance coach development. So I guess I do a range of um, leadership development in corporate government uh, and also work in sports. So this blend I have of just helping people or teams uh, or leaders try and be the best they can be is is certainly a, a real passion of mine. And I'm very grateful for the work that I do. Uh, and just a, the, the final couple thoughts on the current crop of of Australians coming through, uh, be it male or female. Obviously, Ash stepping away from the game at 25, amazing career. Sammy retiring, a, a amazing career. We look at Alex and, and, and Nick, I guess, leading the charge on the men's side. Uh, Alia Tomjanovic been injured at the start of the year but had a very good 2022. What are your, your thoughts on where it's at at the moment? Look, I'm, look, I'm not going to, you know, I'm pretty, I, I like to keep things fairly real. I mean, I mean there's, some de- there's definitely some kids out there, definitely, that, that have you know, what it takes. And, you know, hopefully they can go on to to realise their own dreams. Overall, I think we're a little lean, you know, on what's coming through. And, you know, I think there's lots of reasons for that. And I think there's ways in which we could address that. I, I think a big one for me, and this has been a theme of late, and there's a, you know, a, a psychologist, Jonah Oliver, who's an Australian, works with Cam Smith and a range of other people, but he's you know, kind of got this saying, which is not new. It's kind of where who was the the uh, the where the origin of this came from. But it's this idea that it's hard to survive in the jungle when you've been raised in the zoo. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think we have a responsibility as parents, uh, as a federation, as coaches, uh, to yes build really trusting relationships and caring relationships with our athletes and and you know, really build that rapport, which is critical to getting the best out of others. Um, But I think, you know, there's another piece of this, which is how do we create the environment that is what these kids are up against? It's a jungle out there and it is a hard sport and you're going to have to be incredibly independent, resilient and resourceful to, to make it happen. And so I think we could do a better job in, I guess, cultivating those conditions sort of thing to make, make it tougher for kids to realize what they're up against. Otherwise we're setting them up to fail. That's one of the reasons why I think sometimes we, we have some juniors that, that are doing, you know, pretty well, but they don't necessarily go on because they're not ready uh, from a psychological perspective or, or a resilience perspective to, to make that happen. Got well done on the, the journey across both sports and for your contribution to tennis and the ongoing contribution that you make. It's been great to share some time with you and thanks for, for jumping on with us today. Thanks Darren. Much appreciated, mate. The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, in it to win.